listening to The Last Aid Station on Mountain Bike Radio, your source of off-road news and highlights. Hey gang, it's Mark from The Last Aid Station. This is the second part of a two-part episode that went really, really long. And so we actually ended up taking that episode and splitting it in half. If you're looking for the first part, look back a couple days. We had released that uh, a couple days ago, and it kind of backs up right into where we're going to take over here in following through with the last races of the National Ultra Endurance Series. We also had some news and some information and some stuff on some racers who've been injured over the season and keeping up with what was going on in the world of endurance mountain bike racing. If you really want to listen to the whole show, probably the best thing to do is go back and listen to part one first before you've listened to this one. But anyhow, thanks again. We're really excited about now moving forward with Steve Hamlin as my co-host and hope you enjoy the second part of this episode. Thanks. What race do you want to talk about next? Shenandoah? Shenandoah. Let's talk about Shenandoah. Of course, Shenandoah, in my mind, is like one of the iconic mountain bike races, especially at the endurance level uh, in the world, if you want to. Certainly in the United States. I, I mean, I always think... 650-person field, right? Yeah, yeah. If you if you ever think of someone that's... If you ever think of a race, if you're outside the sport, you always think, oh, Leadville. Um, but, you know, in my mind, as someone who's inside the sport... I think the biggest race that I ever want to do is Shenandoah. True mountain biking, large sections of single track, rooty, rugged, uh, true backcountry racing, one single loop for 100 miles. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's exactly, I mean, this race has been around since the early 90s in one form or another. And um, this is, when you think of endurance mountain bike racing, I think it all starts right at this event. So Chris Scott. Uh, Stooksville Lodge. Of course, Chris Scott has actually purchased a scout camp where the race is held and is actually building that up as a mountain bike destination, kind of like a place for people to go and ride trails and things like that. And that's, of course, where the Shenandoah 100 is based. Um, so, nice. um, always, always, always has a huge field, very talented field that shows up. Um, there's guys that ride that stuff. Day in and day out, the Harrisonburg locals, the, you know, the Virginia guys that are always going to be in the mix. Um, you have a large number of road pros who are usually off getting, um, off their season. It's just, uh, it's just always usually going to be an amazingly competitive field. So Jeremiah Bishop, who's won this race, I don't know, six times, I think. I think we're almost getting to the point where we have to start using our toes to count. Um, and Baker. Of course, was there. Um, those guys are training partners, and uh, very quickly at the beginning of the race, those two guys separated themselves from the group, and they were off the front. Um, Baker would later say that you know this is I was just merely holding his wheel. Bishop was the one driving, you know, and with a a race that generally has a winning time somewhere around seven and a half hours, holding someone's wheel for that long is never something you want to look forward to, and. Um, uh, Bishop was just sub seven, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. He eventually would go on to win it. Baker would end up uh, cutting a tire. Um, and he would, he told me later that it was mostly because I was just trying to hold on to Bishop's wheel. And I just, he doesn't, he says he, I don't have the technical abilities to avoid some of the 
the rocks and things like that that Bishop was, you know, flying down. And he goes, I just, I cut a tire trying to stay with him. And so he eventually, um, even after trying to fix the tire and things like that, saw himself dropping through the field as he was trying to fix it and then just bailed on the race, knowing that it was very possible that he might have to defend at fool's gold. Um, little did he know, um, that the NUE was actually going to be decided that day and that that wouldn't be something he just decided to, he knew he wasn't going to be competing at the end with Bishop um, because Bishop was long gone. And so he bailed on the race, saving his legs, knowing that the fool's gold was just two weeks away. Um, back up front, like we were talking, uh, Bishop would win um, in an astounding six like hours and 49 minutes. minutes. That's just, yeah, it's just ridiculous. Um, With an 18 minute lead too. Yeah. Yeah. Tangy was almost 20 minutes back. I mean, that's just, I mean, and when you think of Christian Tangy, who's won the NUE, series many times um, has an unbelievable number of wins overall in the series over the past 10 years. Um, used to be the guy that used to give Chris Etoff a challenge in these races and finding him it's almost 20 minutes back of Bishop. That's just, um, that's dumbfounding. Um, Jamie Lamb, um, who had won the Tatanka 100 finally answered the question because, you know, Tatanka had such a small field and, you're wondering, okay, here's a guy that comes in and wins the Tatanka 100. Yeah, but how would he do against a really stacked field? I mean, he, yeah, he won, but is it because there was a lack of talent? Because really there wasn't any of the leaders that went to Tatanka. There wasn't any of that stuff. And so you're wondering how he did. Well, he answered that question. He finished third. So, yeah, Jamie Lamb is a talent to be reckoned with. Yeah, and if you go back to Tatanka, yeah. he, he won that race by 40 minutes. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, he, and he won that race, you know, against uh, – Jess Kelly, who, um, as we've seen, is, you know, placing in the top 10. So, uh, in these later races. So it's, it's really not, it's really not that outlandish to consider him. I think he's going to be a top threat if he ever makes a move to race the NUE. Now he lives in Canada. Um, will he, you know, dabble in the NUE to get those minimum four races in? I don't know, but he's certainly shown that he can have some success there. So Jamie Lamb ends up in third in seven hours and 16 minutes, which is actually only about four or five minutes behind um, Christian Tangi. Fourth was Matthew Bailey, and fifth was Brian Schwarm, the guy that had the early lead uh, at the beginning of the season in the NUE. Um, and if you go back through the, uh, you know, the finishes for the, you know, sixth through, uh, you know, 15th place, they were bad. They were battling it out. Yeah. I mean, they were within a minute, two minutes apart. Yeah, and and what's interesting is you've look, if you often if you look at the guys that finish in the top twenty, you'll see plenty of riders that are like, wow, they are really successful here, but they didn't race any other NUE. So there's a lot of talent um, that focuses on Shenandoah because it is a really an iconic event, but they're really not too apt to do the whole NUE series. They look at they they kind of pick and choose their races, and um, Shenandoah is usually one of the ones that they really focus on. Often it's like the end of the season, and that's like the race that. That's their A race for the end of the season before they kind of shut it down. Um, in the women's race, very full and stacked field. And uh, Karen Tai takes the win in her first ever 100-mile event. That's that, right. It was her first 100-miler, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and, and when, I, when I saw that she'd won, immediately I went to Google, typed in, who the hell is Karen Tai? Because I've never heard of her. Um, evidently, she has won the Canadian National Mountain Bike Marathon Championships. 
but she'd never been on my radar. Um, she evidently had an injury over the past um, 12 months, kind of been recovering from that and kind of coming back this season. Took a while to get her back to where she wanted to be. Um, but she, she and Brenda Simrall and Casey Armstrong kind of were racing around each other um, up until about the 60-mile mark. Um, and then once she um, caught Brenda Simrall definitively, she kind of put her head down and decided that that was where she was going and that was where she needed to finish this race off. And she really put her head down and established a pretty big gap. Uh, but she takes the win over Simrall by just seven minutes um, with both of them squeaking in just under nine hours. Uh, Armstrong would finish just over 10 minutes later, just over nine hours for third. Laura Ham for fourth. Wasn't uh, uh, Laura Ham racing up toward the front the first half of the race? Uh, yes. Well. And actually, yeah, some of the um, reports were that Laura Ham had actually been leading the race um, up until about 40 miles or so. And then she'd been kind of racing in and amongst some of the ladies through 40 to 60. And then it kind of started to fade in the last uh, third of the race. And then fifth place to Liz Carrington, who is always seemingly to seeming to get in those top five places. Um, and she's been racing really well this year. Look, there was, there was actually, you know, over, over 40 women in that race. It's and all, I mean, again, it, it, it is a, it is a to do event, um, especially for those on the East coast. I mean, you had, if you looked at where some of these people were from on the results sheet, I mean, you had people from as far North as Maine, as far South as Florida, as far West as, you know, out you had some Colorado riders here, even making that races. And they weren't necessarily contenders. They were kind of mid packers, but it is a definitive race to do. And it's, it's, it's true mountain biking in my mind. Um, certainly there are some sections of pavement and certainly there are some sections of gravel, but, um, unbelievable trail system, um, that Chris Scott heads up to improve on every year and true mountain biking, true mountain biking masters. Roger Massey was there, but Jeff Clayton was there and he brought it to Massey. Of course, Jeff Clayton, we talked about it, the New Hampshire race. He had been one of those guys who had ridden off course. Um, that was about three weeks or four weeks prior to Shenandoah. And um, that lit a bit of a fire under Clayton, who decided that he was going to take his revenge out on the Shenandoah course by training as hard as he could in the weeks prior between those two races after he'd had a DNF at New Hampshire due to riding off course. So um, his reputation... Jeff Clayton's is if you look back at some of his results over the past couple of years at the ultra distance, generally he was the guy that was racing those smaller sister events, the hundred K events that are often held in conjunction with the NUEs. And he was often winning them. And this year he turned 50. And so he moved up to the hundred mile distance and has done exceedingly well. You often find him in that second group on the trail. So after you're, Top pros, the Keck Bakers and uh, Jeremiah Bishops and folks, you know, making up your top six or seven on the trail. You have a chase group, and Jeff Clayton is often among them at 50 years of age, usually right at the front leading the chase. And so I, I'm he, consistently impressed by the competitiveness uh, in these long distance races uh, in in the older age groups. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I think it's absolutely amazing to see guys um, that are continuing to put in. I mean, this 
ultra endurance racing, especially the NUE, um, requires a big time commitment for training. And these guys are putting in 15, 20 hour weeks of training. I mean, it's the only way to remain competitive. And I think these guys are doing exceedingly well. Um, and I think the master's fields are the fields that are growing fastest in speed. Um, you're seeing, you know, the, the winning results of all these different races year in and year out. You know, the winning times for the 50 plus division dropping by 20, 30 minutes at a, at a time every year. That is just ridiculous. I think there's a mental toughness that comes with, uh, yeah. you know, the age, right? And, yeah. and, and maturity and knowing how to handle it. Right. And, and, you know, admittedly, I bet all these guys will tell you, I don't have the snap I have, but I've got the endurance and I've got the power and I've got the, I, I know what I've done wrong and I've learned from my mistakes. And I, I know, you know, I'm sure they also, they can also rationalize behaviors of other racers much better. Yeah. They see someone, they see someone jumping up a climb, you know, sprinting up a climb and, Knowing that uh, I don't have to chase him, he's coming back to me eventually. Yeah, you know, just know it because they've seen so much. They've seen all those experiences and you know gone through all those experiences. And yeah. so, but anyhow, we could probably do a whole episode. Oh, on, on absolutely, that. yeah. We probably should do a talk about like you know what we see is the. I mean, because I think the fifty plus is also the probably the fastest growing division. I'd have to ask every every race I go to, I yeah. um, <laughs> I get my tail kicked by uh, guys flying by me. Yeah. <laughs> That are um, definitely more my age. Uh, but I think Clayton is going to be somebody, you know, this year he probably didn't have the best strategy. He kind of did a couple middle season races and then um, really was hoping to to get those late season races in to challenge Massey. And then the monkey wrench and the whole thing was that, you know, he gets a DNF at New Hampshire and therefore isn't able to challenge him. And um, despite Massey doing as well as he's done this season, Clayton takes the win here at uh, Shenandoah. Massey's right behind him. And then behind those top two, you had Tom Cruise, David Jolene, who's always there. Lee Simrel, who's always there. Uh, they would all finish within three minutes of each other uh, right behind. Unfortunately for Jeff Clayton, there was no way after the finish of Massey in second place, there was no way that he was going to be able to challenge Massey for the overall. And actually at this race, um, Massey locked up the NUE um, with uh, all the wins he needed and all the points he needed with no way for Jeff Clayton to even bring it back to a tie at fool's gold. Um, so, and remarkably, all of the divisions were wrapped up at Shenandoah, either by the wins of the individual riders or by the fact that other riders hadn't been able to get up enough points to require the race at fool's gold to make a difference. Um, so Baker was able to wrap up at Shenandoah, the NUE series win. Um, Brenda Simmerl was able to repeat as the NUE series win. In the single speed, um, Wadsworth had actually already wrapped it up prior to this. Um, the only way that was going to come um, to become a race was that Bob Moss would have to win Shenandoah and then additionally have to win Fool's Gold against Wadsworth. Um, Wadsworth was battling a nasty, nasty flu at uh, Shenandoah. Um, he thinks he, it was something that he had gathered from Costa Rica um, when he'd gone down to the Rincon race, um, some weird parasitic alien jungle infection probably. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I told him that he probably would have climbed better if he didn't have a 30-pound tapeworm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
but anyhow, um, Wadsworth, you know, led as he always does, you know, sticking with the leaders for the first uh, 15 or 20 miles. And then he said he just couldn't put power to the pedals. He just couldn't, couldn't recover over the climbs and pretty soon started dropping through the field. And next thing you know, Don Powers is right on him. And uh, Donald Powers just couldn't believe it. You know, he couldn't believe that he was catching Gordon Wadsworth on the climbs. But Wadsworth ended up bailing out. Um, he, he just he just couldn't put the power to the pedals and realize that the amount of effort that it was going to take him to finish on the day and continue to race was probably just going to be detrimental to him being able to recover for fool's gold. And it probably wouldn't made, have made for a very good day, um, I can't imagine. So very tight racing over the first half. There were there the single speed field was huge. It's more know. than fifty, right? Yeah, was yeah, it, it was 55, crazy. Fifty-seven, just craziness. And then on top of that, you had just about every and any single speed speeder who's really made a difference in the NUE. You had Donald Powers, um, Watts Dixon, who's really been on a roll this year. Um, he just won the single speed division of Monster Cross just a couple weeks ago. It's like thirteen um, of them finished under nine hours. Yeah, uh, Brian Patton, who's always been on, the, he's been on there uh, on some of the. Podiums recently, um, Jason Kraxenberger. Very tight racing. And then after about halfway, you started to see some some gaps really start to open up. Moss and Powers were together up until about 50 to 60 miles before Powers got a gap and then realized that he probably needed to take advantage of it. Knowing the way Bob Moss races, which is like kind of that diesel constant just driving the pedals kind of thing, Powers was kind of forced to really jump up the climbs and he's always a very strong climber, but he really is forcing the, forcing the efforts on the climbs. They um, stayed on the gas too. Cause they, right. They put some distance between the rest of the field. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They actually put in uh, quite a bit of time, but uh, powers ran away. Um, he would later talk about how he, he was always looking behind him, always worried that, you know, there was going to be some turn in the trail and there was going to be, you know, Bob Moss coming up, churning up behind him. But he ran scared all the way to the line, winning in right at eight hours. Um, Moss was just 10 minutes back. The local from uh, right near Shenandoah, where they hold the Shenandoah 100, uh, Dennis Baldwin would pop in for third, Mason Kraxenberger and Scott Smith taking fourth and fifth. And that whole group all finished within 30 minutes of the winner, which is pretty remarkable on a very, very, very climby course where everybody's going to choose their own gear in the single speed division. And so that's just going to automatically have different gaps, especially toward the end of the race, but still very tight racing in the single speed division. Um, but with that, with Donald Powers actually winning Shenandoah, it actually caused Wadsworth to wrap up the, the event because uh, Moss would have had to have won Shenandoah 100, which and was fool's gold and fool's gold. Yeah. Um, and so that actually wrapped it up for Gordon. Um, and he took the, uh, NUE series, wrapped it all up. And let's talk about the last one. Fool's gold. Fool's um, gold. I, you were there, right? I was there. I went down. We'll talk about my race in a second. <laughs> <laughs> Not something I want to relive, but we'll talk about it. Um, but smallish field, very small field. And I don't know if it's because it's toward the end of the year or what, but I mean, the, the, uh, the 100 was just around a hundred or slightly over, but a huge field for the 50 mile distance, which is the full gold 50. The race there is, it's kind of a lollipop course where you actually take pavement and gravel out to the course. Um, on the first lap, it's kind of neutral. And then you do a, a big loop that's about 45 miles. And then if you're doing the 50, you just come back the road and finish. And if you're on the 100, you do another lap at the same course. 
How much elevation is per lap? It is crazy amount of elevation. Um, Most of the elevation is actually stacked in two climbs. Um, The climb to Cooper's Gap, which is around 2,000 feet, give or take. Um, And then the... In one climb? In one climb. In one heinous 12-mile climb. Um, (laughs) It just never ends. It never ends. It's gravel, and it is actually graded. It's really not that steep. There's a couple little little chunky steep sections like around a hairpin or something like that. But for the most part, it's pretty graded. It sticks around, I don't know, seven, seven percent with sometimes a lot less and sometimes just slightly more. Um, and then the other section, then that's on gravel. So that climbs up the, up the gravel climb up to Cooper's gap. And then the other climb is on bull mountain. And that is mostly single track, um, eroded, Rudy, nasty climbing. And it doesn't climb 2000 feet. I think it's probably only around 13 or 1400 foot climb. And then once you get to the top, there's a false flat and then a couple little other climbs that probably aren't part of the same climb, but it feels like it because your legs are still not recovered. But it's of the two, I would actually say that um, Bull Mountain is the worst of the two. Um, it's not as long, but it, it really wears on you because it's not consistent climbing. It's um, a lot of you can't get in a groove, right? You can't get into a groove. And there's lots of like sections where it is right at the border of, okay, should I walk it or should I ride it? And it's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just steep enough. You know, it's probably 18, 20% sections, maybe not longer than maybe 50 yards, but it's all and rooted it, and rocky and eroded. Whichever option you choose is not the right one, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No matter what you choose, someone's going to, I mean, yeah, you're either going to put a bunch of effort into riding it and then have people pass you at the top who'd hiked it or, you're going to hike it and people are going to ride past you. And I mean, it's just, you, you never feel like it's, it's the right decision. Um, I am sure the guys at the front were all sprinting up those sections, um, but they've got a lot more technical prowess than I do. I am sure. But I, so I, what are you looking at? Like 6,000 feet a lap? Yeah. Like around uh, 12,000. Yeah. Cause uh, there's probably a little more than that, maybe around 6,500 per lap. Wow. Um, and then on top of that, you had the, you know, in the lollipop back probably gained you another, uh, I don't know. It's probably about a 300 foot climb, a 400 foot climb on pavement, um, back to, uh, back to the start finish line, which is at a winery, which is really nice. <laughs> <laughs> it heated, uh, didn't it heat up pretty good by the end of the day too? Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, and it's typical Georgia weather. Um, it was actually kind of cool with lots of decision making of, you know, what, what should you wear? Knee warmers, arm warmers, not. I elected to, I was considering arm warmers, but really, really realized that. Once I got on that climb, you know, 15 minutes into the race, I, I was not going to want arm warmers anymore. And so I decided to be a little bit cool in the pack as we rode out to the, you know, on the neutral start. And then what was it in the morning? Um, it was mid fifties. Uh, See, that's like, uh, I'm, I'm in Minnesota. So that's, yeah. that's like, that's the heat wave. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, and it was kind of misty in the morning, a little bit foggy. Um, and, and they do a staggered start there. So the hundred milers actually started before we did, uh, we were behind by, I think it's 30 minutes. We started behind them and which is actually a perfect, I doubt the, um, hundred K guys had to deal with too much traffic on the trails, you know, picking up the end of the hundred milers, maybe if it was a bigger field, they would have, but as far as I know, they really didn't, I didn't hear any complaints of them running into the back of much slower riders on the hundred mile course. So, um, so the race was pretty static. Um, 
natural attrition just kind of brought that after that Cooper's Gap climb um, that goes up. It goes up actually through a special forces training center, uh, U.S. Army special forces training center. And it brought that group down to about 10 or 12 with all of the usual suspects present. Um, you had Schwarm and Baker. And interestingly, there were a couple riders that we'll talk about here um, that kind of made an impact on the race that aren't normal NUE contenders due to them being road pros. And, um, it, but it really made for um, a race. So, Brian Schwarm, um, who has been a contender throughout the year, has been placed sitting in the top, had led the series for about the first half and had been sitting in the top uh, two or three for the rest of the series. Um, just 20 miles in, started developing a slow leak, and he and his uh, teammates stopped. And Brian Schwarm, over the series, has actually continued to use teammates almost like a road race, hmm. using them to assist him with mechanicals, and then, you know, after he fixes a mechanical, using them to pull him back. I saw him do a Kohutta. Obviously, he did it here at Fool's Gold. He uses them to pull him back when he gets dropped, or usually that's because of a mechanical, because he's pretty strong and rarely gets necessarily dropped. But he'll use up his, his teammates um, in the first half of the race before he moves off on his own. Um, and those guys, his teammates, are usually guys that are finishing in the top yeah, eight, eight or ten anyhow. I think his teammate finished seventh, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but anyhow, he ended up with a slow leak, ended up dropping probably almost seven minutes back, um, and it dropped down well through the field. Um, cause at this point, the group had kind of split up. And so you're dealing with him probably in 10th, 12th place, something like that, um, with groups of two or three up front. Back up front, um, you had a couple guys really pushing the pace. And one of those guys was Dylan Johnson, who we talked about pro XCT guy riding for Scott pro team and a new person to the NUE series. Who's someone we haven't even talked about this year, except for one race. And I'll remind you what race that was is Brian Lewis. Now Brian Lewis races for the Kelly benefit strategies pro road team. Um, he is a pro road racer does exceedingly well and actually won the green mountain stage race, which is a big race, uh, Vermont, I believe. Um, but anyhow, he's a very, very, very good road racer. And he'd been pushing the pace. But on top of Brian Lewis being a really good road racer, you're like, well, that means he can probably climb well. He's probably got the power. He's probably lean. He's probably, you know, able to put the power to the pedals. He's efficient. He knows how to eat. He's also a former collegiate national mountain bike champion, which means he's probably got the technical prowess to do really well on the crunchy and nasty technical parts of this course. And that's exactly what he did. I talked to Keck shortly after the race and Keck said, he said he was technically unbelievable. He said he watched him like absolutely slamming it through some of the turns. And he said, there's no way that he would have considered putting it through a turn as fast as he did. And he said he was holding a line. He was just, I mean, he said it was, it was impressive to watch him ride at the front. And so does he do some uh, any cycle cross racing or anything too? Um, I'm not sure if I'd imagine he does really well, but I've actually reported on Brian Lewis. If you remember way back at the beginning of the spring on this show, I talked about the six hours of Warrior Creek, which is a yeah. race here. Well, Brian Lewis destroyed everybody, including two and four per, uh, two person teams. Wow! One handily, one well out in front of everybody, just absolutely. Well, it was pretty. 
fairly tight field, the top top five, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyhow, uh, Brian Lewis, he was he was really ripping the the single track, and then he was really pushing the climbs. And pretty soon, uh, Keck Baker and he had actually separated themselves from the others. Shortly after Brian Schwarm, believe it or not, had come storming back. Um, Schwarm uh, later told me that he he was getting all kinds of incentives because as he started riding and he started passing guys that he knew had been in the league group, he knew he's making gains. And then, sure enough, as he was passing through aid stations, he was seeing people saying, "Yeah, you're only six minutes down. You're only get that adrenaline rush of motivation, right? Yeah. Next thing you know, on their second pass." Uh, through the Bull Mountain Aid Station, um, those guys had stopped to take a breather and refuel and refill their bottles. And who comes ripping down the trail but Brian Schwarm? And he simply says, hey, guys, and jumps on the pedals and is gone. He didn't stop. He didn't do anything. He was gone. And so those guys were sent scrambling, um, trying to get back off of the, you know, back out of the aid station to catch his wheel. And in that scramble, uh, I think there had been five guys in that aid station together. In that scramble to get out, it turned out it was just Brian Lewis and Keck Baker who were all of a sudden were separated, chasing uh, Brian Schwarm as it had caused a gap behind. Uh, took them almost four or five miles to catch up to Brian Schwarm. And, um, so he was actually out front when he came to that aid station. Yeah. Well, he, yeah, he he went right through and didn't even stop. And so those guys were whatever, 30 seconds, you know, finishing refilling their bottles and jumping back on their bikes and chasing him down the trail. So it just kind of caused a little bit of a gap, but they caught him on that bull mountain loop, um, probably on the climb. Um, and pretty soon, uh, once they caught him, there were three together. Brian Lewis started having, um, some issues with his front tire. Thinks maybe he just like kind of burped it or something like that, but he had some low pressure issue. He stopped. He didn't think he'd stop for more than, you know, 15 or 30 seconds. You know, though it's kind of sometimes hard to calculate that out when you're in yeah. the heat of the racing. But he said when he looked up that he didn't even see anybody. They were gone. Um, and, uh, Schwarm, when he saw that Lewis had had some trouble and he knows, he knows Brian Lewis's um, pedigree. He just Schwarm knew that he was having a small issue, and so he went to the front to, to try to push the pace a little. And he did indeed do that. But then um, Baker saw that Schwarm's effort had caused a little bit of fatigue, and he capitalized and jumped around Schwarm and started ripping um, on the remaining sections of trail back into the bull mountain aid station, which is you kind of pass twice there and then onto the sections of really flowy single track that uh, leads you back to the start finish line. And so in the end, um, Baker really put in um, one heck of an effort uh, would go through the next um, checkpoints, growing his lead uh, would finish five minutes up on Brian Schwarm. Uh, Brian Lewis, Again, would finish third. He was able to hold on to the end. Dylan Johnson, who had, again, had had a little bit of an issue fading there uh, right at the end, would finish fourth. And Gordon Wadsworth finished fifth. Now, Gordon had actually been experimenting all season with racing in the open division, usually on a geared bike on his, uh, he has a Pivot 429, a full suspension geared bike. He didn't have a whole lot of success. And so he tried it twice or three times that I know of, never Never finishing. I mean, the first time he tried it was uh, 
did not go well at all, and that was at Mohican. Uh, but he also tried it um, some other races and finished fourth, fifth. Uh, but he decided to try it this time, racing in the open division, but on a single speed, knowing that results really didn't make that much of a difference. And so Gordon Wadsworth actually finishes fifth overall on a single speed, but raced in the open division. And so that left the single speed division wide open. Um, in the single speed, with Wadsworth not there, obviously, it was none other than Bob Moss, always a bridesmaid, actually taking advantage of it. He finished in eight hours and seven minutes, which is really impressive on that course. He's really made a big improvement, even though Bob has always had some success in the NUE. He races a lot of Pisgah, so he knows the technical stuff. He's really come into his form here in the late part of the season. And I, I think a lot of it had to do with he had some off-season surgery last year, and it kind of took a while for that to really come back. But uh, he really won big time at this event. Really, 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 really did well. Um, second place was Pete Henry, who seems to always do well in the uh, NUE, always usually top five. And then third was Jonathan Hicks. Um, in the women's field, if you had a guess, who would win this race? Who would you say? Ooh. I, it's tough for me because I'm actually staring at the results right now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Be Again, in 2020 making, making, making big improvements this year and really showing that she is someone for the future. Carla Williams, she won this race last year. Uh, she wins the race this year. She's climbing unbelievably well. You know, you, I, she, she won with a pretty big gap too. Yeah, she. Um, this was this course had some sections that were really really climby in both ways. I mean, gravel climbs and rudy technical climbing. Um, but also had some sections that were, that would on paper. And if you looked at the maps would say, well, that's just a forest road. How difficult can it be? But it's a washed out forest road with, you know, these big almost chasms of where the, the rain has washed away sections of the road. And it actually becomes a little bit technical. You're going to come storming down a hill at 35 miles an hour. And all of a sudden there's a, you know, a two foot drop. Um, it, it actually had some, some kind of, Call it forest road, but it's yeah, really, really, rugged, really rugged, rugged single track. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still wide enough to be a forest road, but man, I I can't imagine anything driving up that other than maybe a you know a, a truly off road jeep or um, something like that. Um, and then additionally, there were some there were some descents on it that weren't big, maybe three hundred four hundred foot changes in elevation that actually had some um, pretty gnarly rocks and drops. Um, you're not dropping three or four feet, but enough that when you're on a cross country bike, you kind of worry it. about where you're going to land. But, uh, Carla Williams, uh, she pushed the paces on the climbs, both of the big climbs on the course. Uh, Brenda Simmerl was able to keep her in check on the descents. Uh, but every time the road pointed up, uh, Williams was taking advantage of it. And, uh, Carla would roll through the finish, uh, nearly one hour, just about one hour behind the men's winner. And taking her second fool's gold win, and she would win nearly 25 minutes up on Brenda Simmerl. Third was Liz Carrington, just 15 minutes behind Simmerl, and then uh, Jill Martinsdale. So um, pretty impressive racing on the ladies' side, especially when you look at the times. Um, they were really, really, really pushing the climbs um, and uh, showing some impressive form even this late in the season. And in the Masters race, for the last bit... So Roger Massey had already wrapped up the race, and he elected not to attend the Fool's Gold. And so that left none other than Jeff Clayton to be the true powerhouse on the day. 
I'm likely looking to show some authority and to put a stamp on a great season. And that is exactly what he did. Um, he stayed with the overall men's open leaders um, through the first half of the first lap and uh, then was shuttling and shuffling between riders just behind those leaders. Um, he would actually finish eighth overall on the day, winning the 50-plus division handily, nearly 50 minutes up on second-place winner or second-place uh, podium finisher Greg Turner. Third place was Anthony Hergert. Fourth was Lee Simrel, and fifth was David Jolin. That actually made up for Jeff Clayton, I think, is the future of the Masters division. That's nothing against Roger Massey, but I think, man, Jeff Clayton, if he continues to have the form he has in finishing, I mean, if he finished in the top 10 overall on the day, I mean, that's that's some impressive riding. That is really some impressive riding. Well, two back-to-back wins, right? Going yeah. from Shenandoah yeah. into Fool's Gold and doing the same right. thing. And we don't know what would have happened at New Hampshire had he not ridden off course, you know. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's just interesting. I think I would bet, having talked to him just briefly at Fool's Gold, that I, I bet he's going to have a different perspective on how to approach the NUE and not kind of leave it to the end there and really maybe travel or uh, do whatever he needs to do to try to establish a lead early in the season, try to get some Masters wins early, and then – you know, not leave it right to the end, which is kind of what he did, unfortunately. So the final NUE standings going down is open man Keck Baker. Uh, and then there was a three-way tie for second, kind of. Uh, Brian Schwarm, a Christian Tangi, and Josh Tostado. However, Brian Schwarm takes second due to the tiebreaker, um, which had to do with your placing at Fool's Gold, and with Josh Estado and Christian Tangi not there, kind of left it wide open. Fourth was Dylan Johnson, and uh, fifth was uh, Jess Kelly, if you take out all the, the ties there. Um, in the women's, uh, Brenda Simmel repeats again, uh, repeat from last year. Carla Williams, she came on strong in the second half, winning both races she entered, and she was undefeated in races against Brenda Simmel. So next year is sure to get interesting. The other interesting thing is to see how some of the other racers, Amanda Carey really said that she likes the 100 milers. She may come back. Um, Linda Shin is always there. Marla, Marley Dixon, who races out west, she never seems to do very well when she comes out east due to the, she thinks the humidity and things like that. Uh, but maybe, maybe a little bit of a transition or maybe her hitting some of the races that aren't quite as so far east, maybe Lumberjack or some of those may uh, benefit her. And then also to see some of the ones that some of the racers that didn't do all the races to qualify, like the Casey Armstrongs, Mike, uh, Nina Otter, some of those ladies may do very well. The other thing that did, other racers that have done extremely well this year, um, Serena Bishop Gordon, who won, I think she won Cascades, um, Vicki Barkley, true pro women, um, racing more of the XC division stuff. Um, when they race the NUE, they seem to do well. And to see one of those ladies perhaps move in and focus on the NUE, or at least be allowed to focus on the NUE by their team, may, may throw some weird strategies into the racing. Single speed, Wadsworth, who else? <laughs> Wadsworth with his podium shorts, uh, takes the win. Uh, Bob Moss in second in the series. Pete Henry in third. Joseph Strohs in fourth. Igor Danko in fifth. It's kind of like, like I'd mentioned to you before, it's kind of a fickle group in the single speeders because there's plenty of guys who place regularly in the top five 
in the races, but they don't compete in the minimum number of four races in the NUE to compete for the overall. Often they do really well for finishing second or third, um, but then they, the NUE comes down to you know, how, how you did in your best four races and maybe they don't have enough. Uh, races under their belt. Um, what do you, what do you think that is, Mark? Uh, is it uh, is it because it's still growing? Maybe or? I think it's a little bit of growing. I think it also has to do with a little bit of the geography of the NUE. I mean, the NUE pretty much exists as a. I mean, it's very regional. You've got a lot on the East Coast, which is kind of where the NUE started, and then you've got um, two or three there in the middle in the yeah. in the mountain states, and then you got two out on the West Coast. So you've been following it for. for- Longer than me is it? You know, do you see a trend of uh, a actually, little bit I mean, at the previous year, and then they they jump in more the following year? Uh, no, I don't see the single speeders really making much of a difference. I mean, a lot of the strong single speeders um, who've done well in the NUE but never gotten enough races seem to be in that mountain region. The guys from Colorado they seem to do really well, and okay, but you know, it, it's for them to compete really in the NUE. You pretty much end up having to you got, you kind of pretty much have to be able to travel. And, uh, whether that means they sure. have to travel and if it comes down to a tie, you know, say you have four wins and your competitor has four wins, you're going to have to travel to the fool's gold to compete. And that, man, that's a big physiologic, uh, issue for them for, to race in the heat, in the humidity. I mean, it'd be the same uh, as if we had to go out to Colorado to race at altitude for a championship. I mean, yeah. You can, yeah, you can do it, but you know you're going to need two or three weeks really to get your body used to that uh, that oxygen and everything else. So um, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I, it would be nice if the NUE was um, spaced equally, but if you look at ultra endurance races, they're not spaced equally around the country either. You know, it seems like there's a bunch of them in kind of the Mid Atlantic region, and there's a bunch in Colorado yeah, they're kind of grouped, and a bunch East Coast, and then there's a bunch like you know, around your area in Michigan and Wisconsin and stuff like that. Yep. So I don't, I don't really don't know what the answer is. Um, it would be nice to like to see them more equally spaced, but I mean, that's just about the way it is. I mean, ultra endurance racing doesn't seem to be a big thing in uh, the Midwest for some reason, especially like the lower portion of the Midwest. Not a big thing seems to be in, in Texas either. Um, but I just think that's just because of a regional thing. Yeah. I mean, it'd be nice to see, to see a more, desire uh, to race in the NUE, but that's, it's probably regional as to whether, whether the NUE is important to some people and not important to others. Um, so that was the NUE. Uh, you actually got a chance to go up to a, do a race or see a race and do a race. What race is that? Yeah. The Chiquabagan Fat Tire Festival. Okay. Uh, it's only a 40 miler okay. and it's a very fast 40 miler. Um, the, uh, the leaders finish it in just over two hours. Um, so they're averaging, you know, 19 miles an hour, but, uh, it's on the Berkey Beaner ski trails. Oh, okay. So it, it was, uh, a pretty stacked, uh, field. They actually award out the, uh, the top 20. It ran a little slow this year as far as uh typical time. So uh, I think the leader, Jeff Hall, actually he won it for a second time, uh, 20 years after winning it the first time. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We talk about uh, getting stronger, staying strong as you're getting older. Uh, there's a good example. So uh, Brian Matter, uh, six-time winner, finished fifth. And uh, Jeff Hall probably rode the last 30 miles of that race solo out on his own. 
Uh, there's, there's quite a bit of gravel in that race, um, outside of the ski trails. And, uh, that's a pretty strong feat to, uh, uh, to rip all that on your own, especially at those, those speeds on a mountain bike. Yeah. I read a little bit about it. Do you think it was, I mean, some of the reports were that everybody was watching Moder, And so that just allowed Hall to kind of get away. Yeah. You know, it might've been, it, 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 uh, it sounds like when he took off on his attack that, that nobody jumped. Um, the, uh, uh, and when it went through the fifth, they went through the 15 mile OO mark. Yeah. Um, he had a, you know, 45, 50 second gap. And, uh, I heard, I heard some reports of people yelling out a minute 15 or something. And, and then I think some of the guys like Tilford mentioned in his, uh, his write up that, uh, they were like, wow, we're in trouble. And, uh, uh, it sounds like they, they had a, uh, a bit of a large group at first maybe too many people to try to get organized and, and chase them down uh, until it was too late. And they hit the, uh, the big climb um, fire tower climb and a couple guys took off uh, on a chase uh, day flat. And then of course still just, but, but wasn't able to pull them in. So well, cool. Um, how did the women, how did the women's thing all work out? Chloe Woodruff uh, finished first and, uh, she she had a good lead going through the OO mark and uh sounds like she actually dialed it back a little bit after that, but she held her lead. It uh you had Caitlin Patterson in in second, three minutes back, and then uh Jenna Reinhardt back uh only a minute back from that. Okay. Now do they race do the women race with the men there or is it a separate field? Yeah, they race they race together. So it's okay. it's it's kind of interesting because it's so the the start line of this race is huge. It's uh there's two thousand racers. I think it's capped at twenty one hundred. It's a lottery to get in. Yeah. Um if so if you haven't done it before, you don't have a race resume, you kinda keep working your way up each year. Okay. And um uh so the the women take off and it's it's you're racing in packs most of the time. Right. So, yes. so I mean, the women's thing, it, it comes down to like them mixing it in among, you know, other competitors. Exactly. Do at their level. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And it, it, it seems like, uh, um, you know, myself, I, this is my third year doing it. So I kind of been trying to work my way up through the, the starting gates each year. And, um, you know, you, you, you kind of take off and it's like the first 10 miles you're trying to, you know, catch or find who you can pace with for the race. Yeah. You know? And I'd imagine, I mean, starting with 2,000 riders, you know, I can't, ima- I, mean, I can't imagine that if you're outside the top 10 rows that you're, you're going to Yeah, respond. it's, the start line is, oh boy, I, it's hundreds of yards long and there's seven starting gates and then they place you in a starting gate based on your, your previous race time. Right. Um, seemed like the, uh, it was a, it was a little heavier stacked race this year than maybe last year. I know right. myself personally, I was in gate five last year and, uh, the gate four folks were, I was in gate four this year and it seemed like there was just as many, if not more people in gate four through two than there was last year and five up. Okay. So, um, I forgot to mention how my race had gone at fool's gold. Um, how, how did your race go at, uh, at Shaquan gone? Uh, I went all right. I, I would have liked to have gone faster, finished better. I, I placed the 187th, uh, which is, Last year, I finished 530-something place, so yeah. uh, improvement. Yeah, I uh, um, I had some issues. Uh, my, my goal had been going into Fool's Gold, and everything pointed towards – I only raced the 50. My goal had been to go – I was hoping – I knew I would go sub-five. Uh, my goal was to go – 
I was going to be happy if I went under 445. And everything pointed toward me doing that. But up the first climb, um, I started having weird hamstring uh, issues. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's something I ate or, you know, I was maybe a little dehydrated already. I don't, I'm not really sure. Uh, but we got into the first aid station and I did something that I don't normally do, but I was looking for anything that would help me. Uh, Trying yeah. something new on yeah, race well, day. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, at this point, I mean, I had to do something. I mean, I yeah. was cramping already, you know, 10 miles into the, into a yeah. the race. Um, and so they had, they had, they were sponsored by hammer and they had the Endura lights there. And so I grabbed three of those, um, which is just the normal, what you normally take. And I, I've never used Endura lights. I usually get my, my electrolytes through fluid replacement, whatever, you know, whatever I'm using at the time. Um, and I did, I took three, jumped back on my bike and rode maybe hundred yards down the trail and just left everything that I had in my stomach out on the trail. And, um, um it just, and after that, I just, I couldn't take anything in for about the next two hours, including just plain water. Um, it would come right back up. I'm not really sure if it was the Endurolite or just a coincidence, but, hmm. um, it made the last 30 miles of, of a 15 mile race, which is crazy because it's really not that long of a race into a death march. And I finished, uh, you finished that? Oh yeah, I finished. Finished it um, out. I I decided no, it didn't matter. I was going to finish it, but man, it was like uh, I was like six and a half hours. I mean, it was bad. I mean, I'd like there were um, a couple of the rest stops where I, my my stomach cramps were so bad. That I just I got into an aid station, and just laid down um, for you know four or five minutes. And I it was bad. It was really, really, really bad. And I had no power in the pedals. I raced with a power meter and. It, I can't explain how low the power readings were. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I don't have a, I don't have an answer for it because, you know, two or three days later, I felt fine and went back on my ride and, you know, everything seems normal. Um, Is that your first race back after a while? Um, it was my first race back, but I've been doing like some pretty hard rides and fast rides and things like that. So, I I mean, I wasn't, I mean, and I didn't go into the race. Obviously I wasn't going into the race to win. I mean, yeah, you know, I think the winning time was under well under four hours. So it wasn't it wasn't like I was I was racing out of my head because I purposely even on the climb was tape, tempering it back, knowing I said, well, I got this whole race. I can you know if I still feel fine coming out of aid station number three, I can push the final fifteen miles back and make up any time. And there's really not a whole lot of climbing after aid station number three to you know to really hurt me. So. But I, I, I just don't I don't have any explanation for it. And um, I'm sure many people have gone through that before. But, yeah, I just I have no idea what happened. <laughs> so so what's next for you then? Um, you know, I've, I've been considering there's a six-hour race coming up um, in a couple of weeks. I've been thinking about doing that. It's down near um, the ocean, so it is dead flat. Um, still kind of tossing that around. At this point, with, uh, we've been having rain here. Um, in North Carolina for seven days and they're expecting another seven days of rain. And so <clears throat> I'm thinking about switching my, my mountain bike up to a kayak at this point because, um, I haven't seen trail in two weeks. It'll be interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm, having, I'm actually having to do a lot of riding indoors because the, uh, with the hurricane coming and everything else, it's kind of causing me to have to ride indoors because even the wind is, is really bad on the road. So we'll see. I'd like to do I'd like to do another endurance race before the end of the end of the season, so to speak. But we'll see. Uh, and you, how about you? What do you think? Uh been been itching to want to race some more. I just kind of this year uh, 
getting addicted to it, but um, I'm probably going to hold off and wait until the uh, the solstice chase do some fat bike racing this winter and uh start a, a good training block for next year i kind of uh oh, i had a great i had a great year of of uh finding new races and and also figuring out what type of racing i liked i mean i tried road racing and crits and all kinds of stuff and i've kind of pretty settled on this endurance mountain bike racing so um kind of kind of focused to put a put a good schedule together for next year yeah it, i think that's really cool about like right now is like you know you're like thinking of you're starting to already think of, okay, what's my schedule going to be like next year? What races do I really want to target? Yeah. And as much I'm as I, excited about it. Yeah. I mean, as much as I want to do some NUE races, I also want to start dabbling in some other stuff, some bucket list races that I've always wanted yeah. to do, but never got a chance to. And so I think that that's what I'm going to kind of target next year. Some of the races that I've said I was going to do, but kind of, you know, time and, and uh whatever have never allowed me to do it and so I'll put those as the a races even if they're not big national races or whatever i yeah. still want to go do them so to me it's part of uh it's a little part of my my drive too is uh what i like about this type of racing is it it uh, i like to travel with my wife and kids and stuff and we it it's like a, a way to get out and see a new place in the country yeah go go to a new place so yeah, Amen. Uh, yeah exactly I mean, it's, it's uh it's the adventure part of it it's not just the race it's the yeah. The whole adventure behind it. So, yeah. and you know, I, I, and as we kind of expand the last aid station, I, I don't want to necessarily just report on the NUE. I want to start really continuing to talk about everything that's endurance. We kind of let slide a lot of the results and stuff from gravel racing and things like that. And I want to bring that back. And so I want to go out and do some of these bigger gravel races, especially in my area. I've never done Hilly Billy Roubaix. I've never done Monster Cross. I've never done um, some of those races. And I, I just want to get out and get a chance to actually experience those. There's a lot of good ones out there. Oh, there's some great ones out there, yeah, for sure. So um, I think that's about it for this show. Um, I'd like to wrap it all up. We'll definitely be um, – this This show ran a little long, um, but we're also trying to catch up with everything that's gone on um, since the last episode, and we're bringing Steve in, and it's kind of cool. Um, we're really not sure how this all works out, you know, with us bouncing ideas off each other and talking and having something a little bit more conversational. Bye. So, Might take us a couple to yeah yeah, uh, but I think, I think we're we're on the right track, and I think yeah. and I hope you guys continue to listen as we kind of evolve and make this a much more smooth and and conversational kind of podcast. Um, and certainly, we want to start involving the listeners and things like that, and answering questions, and maybe even asking you guys for um, some ideas for conversations that Steve and I can bounce off and argue about. Perhaps. Um, thank you very much for joining us here on the last aid station. So for myself and Steve, thank you for joining us. And we hope to see you guys out on the trail and hope you guys continue to listen to us here on mountain bike radio.